what happens to it? And to the wastewater, which is not just poop, but also the water that goes down your drains? It turns out there are different ways to clean it up. In the Bay Area, there's a huge mosaic of sanitary districts, from giant to tiny. In this episode, we compare and contrast, as they used to say in school. It's complicated. Welcome to Linksploration Bay Area. Climate change. We look at it up, down, and sideways. We follow the links between climate change and so many other issues, and all of it with a local twist. Hi, welcome to Linksploration Bay Area. I'm Jean Rosenmeyer, host of this episode. Sewage. Let's start with some basics. We were astonished at how many districts there are running the gamut from giants like San Francisco, Marin Central San, and East Bay Mud, to tiny local ones like the Mount View Sanitary District, that's in Martinez, and everything in between. We arranged to do the public tour of the Contra Costa Central Sanitary District's plant in Martinez. What we thought would just be a simple plant tour and exploration turned out to be a fascinating research project. Yeah, I ended up exploring the websites of multiple sanitary districts from the peninsula to Marin to Contra Costa, and they too run the gamut. Some have a serious virtual tour, which leaves you feeling like you've been there, and some tell you nothing about their process other than assuring you that they meet state and local standards. They all have some variation on some of the same steps. In the initial phase, which is called the headworks, there are huge metal filters that remove big stuff from the sewage coming in. They also, at this point, take the contents of porta-potties and septic tanks and start running them through the system. Commercial food waste, that is to say, restaurant food and grease, that comes in later. Second stage, settle out the grit, in which it's aerated just enough to keep the organics in suspension but the heavier grit and sand, that kind of thing, settles out. Third stage. That's the primary sedimentation where the water slows down and much of the organic waste, that is to say poop and the such things, sinks to the bottom while grease, fats, and oils float. They scrape the sludge from the bottom and skim the grease from the top. This is a basic process all the plants do. Stage four. Secondary treatment in which oxygen-loving bacteria eat the hydrocarbons that are still suspended in the water, and then they release CO2. There are somewhat different ways of structuring the secondary sedimentation, but the bottom line is you've got oxygen-loving bacteria that digest the hydrocarbons and give off carbon dioxide. The fattened bacteria are allowed to settle out, and most of them are reused. Stage 5. Disinfection got to kill any stubborn bacteria that refuse to settle out. There's three methods. Either you can shine strong beams of UV light on them, or you can use chemicals, which is basically adding chlorine, that is sodium hypochloride to be exact. Then you have to add more chemicals to get the chlorine out of the water before it can be released to the wild. And then there is San Francisco, 
which always has to go its own way, right? From its Oceanside Processing Plant, it sends the treated water out four and a half miles into the ocean without being disinfected at all. That is to say, it's already gone through the aeration and the bacteria that eat the hydrocarbons, but those bacteria just stay in the water, and they're out to the ocean, and the concept is that the cold, salty water that far out will kill the remaining bugs. Before we move on to what happens to all the stuff they filter, scrape, and skim, I just want to mention rainwater. Most sewage systems are what they call closed systems. They have pipes that collect water from your toilets and your inside drains. Water that goes down storm drains in these systems is not processed. That's why you may see signs near the storm drains that say something like, do not dump drains to bay or drains to creek. The only effect rain has on these systems is that it tends to seep into leaky pipes. That's what they say, anyway. They must have a lot of leaky pipes because they nonetheless have a huge increase in inflow when it rains. Marin Central Sand, for instance, estimates an increase of up to 60%. San Francisco. Surprise! They do their own thing. SF has the only consolidated system on the West Coast. The water from the storm drains is collected and processed. Now when you think about it, that's not such a bad thing, except when it rains. San Francisco has three processing plants, two for normal times and one for rainwater processing in wet weather. The upside of this kind of system, which other older cities also have, is that water washing off the streets, which when you think about it is far from clean, gets processed before it ends up in the ocean or the bay. The downside is what happened this winter where they had to release untreated water and it ended up in people's backyards in low-lying areas. Moving on, you remember all the scraping and settling and skimming? Well, the big stuff that's filtered out at the headworks in step one is not sorted in any way. It's just trucked off to landfills, along with the grit from the grit settling phase. This is mainly items that should never have been in the waste stream in the first place. All, and I mean all, the agencies emphasize that only the three P's should go down the toilet. Pee, poop, and toilet paper. So-called flushable wipes are, well, not flushable. Don't do it. Ditto for Kleenex and paper towels. They seem soft to us, but they're actually coated with strengtheners that keep them from disintegrating when you give a good blow or wipe up spilled coffee. That coating also keeps them from disintegrating properly in the septic system. Throw them in the garbage, please. What happens to the biosolids? The sludge that settles out in various stages, plus the fats, oils, and grease, is where the agencies part company. Many agencies run anaerobic digesters, in which oxygen-hating bacteria digest the biosolids in a closed tank. Now, these agencies usually add restaurant food waste and grease trucked in directly at this stage. After a week or two, depending on the setup, you get methane and compost. The compost is either trucked to farms or it's used as a daily cover in various landfills. They recapture the methane, they're very good about that, and use it to power the plant and to make electricity. Edmund even claims that its plant is net energy positive. Not counting the fuel that's used to truck stuff in and out, of course. Mostly, 
The agencies don't make such extravagant claims, but it is a significant source of power for them. Contra Costa Central San is the one district we found, of the ones that make the information public, that goes a different route. They incinerate the biosolids. There is a giant gray building on the site that holds the incinerator. It is powered by methane collected at the nearby Acme landfill. The excess heat of the incinerator runs a turbine that generates electricity to help run the pumps in the plant. It's much less power than you would get from an anaerobic digester. The end result of the incinerator is a sterile ash that's used as a soil amendment. Good news! It takes a lot less fuel to truck away the sterile ash than it does to truck away the compost that's produced in other plants. Also, the incinerator appears to destroy some stubborn pollutants, PFAS, for instance, that will come through the digesters unfazed. So that was the longest introduction to this podcast that we've ever had. I do want to get to our Central Sand Tour, and when I start playing it, you'll understand why that didn't form the centerpiece of this podcast, because, wow, the, the plant was pretty noisy. But it did give me the opportunity to ask a few deeper questions than you would see in a virtual tour or on their website. Starting with, uh, I figured out from my own experience, does it smell? The answer is, not really. But that's mainly because they add chemicals that reduce the smell before they even start running it through the system. I'm here with Chris Carpenter, the Senior Community Affairs Representative for Contra Costa Central Sanitary District. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. I've grown up in the communication services. I was a summer student with with the same work group. I was able to develop my skills and kind of work my way up within the communications group, so learning a lot about education programs, tours. Um, I do a lot of outreach for construction projects and things like that, too. What do you mean outreach for construction projects? Um, When we're doing pipeline renovations, so we have 1,500 miles of pipeline out there, so we replace six miles of pipe a year, so we have multiple projects which are in developed neighborhoods that these pipes are 70 years old. Sometimes in their streets, sometimes they're in easements through people's properties. Uh, So when we do those projects, I'm the point of contact for all of the residents when we're out doing pipeline replacements, so... Does that water come in batches, or is it always kind of continually flowing in and out? It's always The water is always kind of a continual flow. The rate changes, and the volume will change a little bit. Um, there's a kind of a typical cycle. peaks a couple of times during the day. Uh, so it starts climbing around 6 in the morning, and it peaks probably around noon or 1, because, you know, you get up, everybody gets up in the morning, Start taking your showers, getting ready, and then it takes time for the water to get here. So if you live right here in Martinez, it doesn't take very long at all. But if you live in San Ramon, it could take a few hours. Um, And so it peaks, and then it dips off a little bit throughout the afternoon. And then again, later in the evening, starts climbing again. Ready to get home from work, start doing showers, making dinner, doing the laundry again. And then middle of the night, it hits a peak, and then it drops to its low point again. Uh, in the early, early morning hours, and kind of we repeat that cycle. I also asked about testing. It turns out that this is a very, very delicate process, and when we were on the primary treatment phase, we saw a man with a test tube 
which I didn't realize was a tube because it looked like a very long stick. So I asked Chris what he was up to. So he's got a white stick so that he could see the dark junk. It's a tube. It's a tube. So he's running that tube down and it's filling up and he's got markers uh, on the tube. So when he pulls it up, he can see the depth of the sludge that's in the tank. Why do we care? Uh, it's an indicator of uh, the process to, to the operation. So do they need to speed up, slow down? You know, is it within standard parameters? So the, the, the treatment plant's always operating within within like a high and low value. for You know, it's a different value for each phase of treatment, but they're looking at these values and uh, confirming um, that they're operating within the ideal values. And so he's probably just getting confirmation. And then if it's out or approaching one of the min or maximums, they can make adjustments to uh, pump flows, different things like that, in order to come back into where they want to be. I asked Chris about what would happen if there were an earthquake. Let me rephrase that. I asked Chris about what will happen when there is an earthquake. Uh, a number of years ago, some of our engineers developed these um, doors, essentially. There's a gasket. It's sealed at the top, and there's a neoprene door, and it's in a, it's in a gasket on the sides and the bottom held in place. And then if there was an earthquake and you had a lot of water movement back and forth, yep. the idea is it just would knock that door loose and that would absorb the impact from an earthquake. And then that tank is only offline for as long as it takes to reset those doors and the mechanics are still in good shape. So I'm confused about what gets processed out and what doesn't. So I asked Chris about that. What about you know, all the chemicals of everyday life? What happens to them? So if I use Comet to clean my toilet <laughs> and there's all that chlorine, is there some way that's coming out of the water? The amount of cleaner you're using to clean your toilet is very small in the grand scheme of things. And it's not a real caustic, harsh chemical. So when you're introducing a couple of shakes of Comet through cleaning your toilet, uh, you're not adding anything that's going to impact, you know, this massive 30 million gallons of water coming into our treatment plant that day. What are chemicals of concern? A chemical of concern is going to be anything more, let me see if I think of a couple things, like pesticides, um, automotive care products. A chemical of concern is a specific technical term, but like on a broader scale, you know, we're looking for non-organic materials that are going to come in and harm the environment that are going to either disrupt our treatment process. Imagine um, copper-based root killers, you know, heavy metal, copper could be a problem, so we don't use those anymore. Flea dip, you know, back in the day, you don't see this anymore, but you remember flea dip? Oh, yeah. You know, sit your cat in the sink and pour all this stuff to kill the fleas and right down the drain in here. Well, imagine flea dip doesn't do very well for our bacteria <laughs> so how'd you get the stuff out so those are banned we don't that, our process doesn't remove those things so we've actually went through this even years before i was here uh agencies like central sand included were instrumental in getting some of those products banned because the process doesn't remove those things so the goal is keep them out in the first place oh and that's why you have to turn in your auto used oil somewhere yeah exactly yeah this process is designed to remove organic material so inorganics, we're not, you know, there are some things that are removed by chance. Sometimes certain things could be removed. We're hearing that maybe PFOS is removed by incineration. Again, that's 
by happenstance, right? We didn't design it because we didn't know that PFOS wasn't a thing when the plant was made. So there is some fortunate circumstances where materials are removed by this process. But when you're talking about, yeah, automotive products, things that are super water soluble, pesticides and herbicides, um, that stuff can pass through our treatment process uh, and wind up out in the environment. So the goal is to keep them out in the first place. In a question that we didn't get to record, I asked about what they do with microplastics. At the moment, the answer is nothing. But Central Sand is part of a pilot project in which they're going to have a series of different size filters and they're going to at least assess how many microplastics are really coming into the plant. And then they're going to decide what to do about it. Given our potential drought problems and possible water shortages, not just now, but going forward, I asked if we would ever be drinking the water from Central Sand. I'll, re- I'll play you his answer, but it's basically no. We have similar customer bases. And so all of a sudden, if somebody else were to sell water to a water district's customers, they're not getting the revenue. How are they maintaining? So they're going to have to raise their rates in order to maintain the services that they have to provide to their customers because somebody else is selling water. So it's just it's just one more very complicated part of a massive puzzle, you know, that, that is water rights. <laughs> and so that's why what sounds a lot of times as a very simple solution, once you start digging into why don't you just do this or give the water to these people, once you start looking into it, you realize it's not as simple. <laughs> The devil's always in the details, isn't it? Well, Central Sand and Contra Costa Water are separate agencies, but some places have joint agencies, like the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission runs both the water and the wastewater, and EBMUD also. Of course, their infrastructure is pretty separate, but at least they are the same agency, so there is the possibility that they could cooperate in the future. Ha, think we're done? Fooled you. The water we just described is good enough for the critters in the bay, but some of the water undergoes further treatment, microfiltering, more disinfection, and so on, and becomes officially designated recycled water. Still not drinking water, but good enough for landscape and industrial uses. It travels around to factories and commercial establishments lucky enough to be close to the plant in a separate system of pipes, which are easy to spot because they're purple. By the way, if you'd like some of this recycled water, at least at Central Sand, it's free to residents. So grab a hundred milk jugs or a giant tank and come on down. Looking at where the outflow goes, you got it. It goes into our various waterways. San Francisco sends some of its outflow into the ocean, some of it into the bay. Marin's goes into the bay. Edmund sends its outflow a mile into the bay and 50 feet deep, just by the Bay Bridge. Mount View sends its water to several wetlands. We definitely have to do an episode on this little tiny sanitary district. Central Sands outflow is into Sassoon Bay, not far from the Walnut Creek estuary that we explored in an earlier episode. Does anybody test the water as it goes out into Sassoon Bay? Oh, goodness. The water is constantly tested from all stages of treatment. So, yeah, it's tested from the time it comes in through every phase of treatment and as it leaves the plant and 
we test the water in Sassoon Bay after as well. So it's, it's tested for both compliance with permits to make sure we're doing our job properly, but it's also tested as a process information for the operators. So a lot of the tests are actually feeding operators information and they take the values for whatever and they can make adjustments to the treatment process so that let's say for turbidity, uh, the water has to be clear for UV to work. They're testing the turbidity throughout and if we're getting high turbidity, the operators get that data, can make adjustments to to lower the turbidity so that our yeah, so that our UV is effective. As to the impact of climate change on the wastewater stream, the primary impact is going to be whether they can handle the volume from large storms that we expect in the future and whether drought conditions will result in pressure for them to capture more water and reuse it. And it's pretty well known that San Francisco's Oceanside plant is vulnerable to sea level rise. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to Chris for his expertise. Join us in three weeks for another exciting episode of Linksploration Bay Area. Linksploration Bay Area is an independent podcast. Find, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is linksploration.com, where you can listen to our archives, and there's also show notes, photos, and links to our guests. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at linksploration at gmail.com, and that's spelled L-I-N-K-S-P-L-O-R-A-T-I-O-N. Look for us on social media, also on Patreon. We are not in this to make money, but we do welcome donations to help with the cost of keeping the podcast on the air. We're Gene, Sharon, and Christy signing off until next time. Thanks for listening.